What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show, and welcome to the second episode of the Bitcoiner Book Club. Episode one was on The Sovereign Individual. Had a great group of Bitcoiners discussing that awesome book. If you didn't listen to it live, you can check it out on the pod feed, or you can uh, see it on YouTube as well. Um, And actually, this whole series came about while and after reading The Sovereign Individual. I was just blown away by the book and found myself really wanting to discuss it with somebody uh, when I was finished and not having anyone in my my normal life to do so with and knowing that it's such a popular book in the Bitcoin space, I thought, what would be better than getting together with a bunch of Bitcoiners and talking about uh, what they learned, the insights they gleaned, how it impacted their thinking, their perspective and all that kind of stuff. And it was awesome. So if you haven't listened to it, definitely check that out. Today is another classic, an instant classic actually, And that is The Bitcoin Standard by Seyfedeen Amos. Tremendous book, widely read in the Bitcoin space, and probably a book that actually penetrated outside of the Bitcoin space because it really helps place um, Bitcoin in the context of monetary history. And for many of us, probably gave us a a, a better understanding uh, of monetary history and the evolution of money and the implications of the type of money used in a society and in an economy um, than any book we'd come across before or any consideration that we might have had before. Of course, I'm generalizing. I know there's a bunch of monetary geeks out there as well. You might be among them, but for many people, this was a very, uh, very impactful book in how they thought about money. And so I thought no book was more deserving for the second round of the Bitcoiner Book Club than the Bitcoin Standard. And uh, so the way this works is... Once the book is chosen, I'll tweet it out. And I generally say, if you just like the book, then don't DM me to try to be involved. But if you, you know, if it was really impactful for you, if you've got some, you know, unique insights to share, if you can draw on some specific passages from the book, um, then hit me up and we'll see if we can get you in on the discussion. And so this week we had four Bitcoiners together to talk about this book. We'll see how the format morphs and changes as we go along. I'm still finding my footing with it, so you know it may change over time. But for now, we're just bringing some Bitcoiners together to talk about these great works and uh, how they impacted our thinking. And a final thing, of course, if there are any books that you'd like to see covered by the book club and or if you'd like to be involved, then uh, hit me up, send me a DM, let me know, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy, guys. Let's do it. And we're live. So unfortunately, I don't have a hard copy of the book here today. I actually gave it to Maxime Bernier, a a political uh, leader in Canada. I sent him my only copy. However, today we are going to be discussing a foundational text in the Bitcoin space, one that I think has probably influenced many of our thinking to some degree or another, and that is the Bitcoin standard. So... Um, You know, this book was uh, hugely influential to a lot of people in doing a number of different things. And I think in contextualizing the history of money and then placing Bitcoin in that framework so people get an idea, you know, just kind of how these sort of systems, these monetary systems evolve. We're going to break into that in a moment, but I want to introduce everyone who's uh, on the panel discussion today. So gents, Phil, why don't we start with you? Just uh, introduce yourself a bit and why don't you share with us why you wanted to contribute to this panel today. Yeah, what's up guys? Happy to be here. So yeah, my name is Phil Gibson, uh, AKA Mr. Sue, P-S-E-U for any confusion. 
but yeah, I mean, it's the Bitcoin standard as opposed to the gold standard. It's what we're aiming for. We're all Bitcoiners here and we understand, well, or at least we think we understand just the capability and the power that this thing has and the potential to actually get back on a sound money standard because the best things happened during those times. So it's definitely a primer for anyone who's considering whether it's buying or just, just learning about Bitcoin is a prereq, if you will. And it, it changed me and I'm sure it changed everyone here, but you know, it's why I'm here. Nice. Al. So I am uh, Al's lacrosse probably best known as Marty Bensold lacrosse coach. Uh, I host the Dirtbag Friday Zoom chat on Fridays, obviously. And I now have the Alzlax podcast also. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I am here because this is probably my favorite book about Bitcoin so far. Uh, it's definitely my favorite to give to people because I think it strikes a perfect balance between technical information from an economic standpoint while being accessible to the layperson. Um, it is really, really good at crystallizing certain views, which, uh, you know, could have a lot of mathematics and concepts behind them into very simple language. Um, so even for those of us who are maybe a little more well-read on these issues, it, uh, it really helps bring things to the forefront. So it's a great book. Nice. Blake. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a must read. Um, I got early copies of it. I've, I've got a digital copy. I got the audio copy and I give it to all my friends that, uh, even mentioned the word Bitcoin um, as a gift. Um, I've taken all of Safe Bedeen's classes. I, I just, uh, I got early access to it. I think I, I uh, found it online and kind of stole it or some, somehow got early access to it. But um, but yeah, I'm a huge fan of it and, and taking all his courses. Um, and it's fundamental and it's a, it's a great read, um, not too technical, where it's, it's mainly history oriented. And again, they don't talk about uh, Bitcoin until like, I think the ninth chapter. So they really don't even mention the word Bitcoin, just talking about sound money. And uh, if you're going to understand, you know, to me, Bitcoin is, a, is, is an obviously an amazing invention. And it's like, like on the level of a flying car that uses trash as fuel. But most people don't even know what, um, you know, what sound money is, what a, what a good money is. And uh, Safedine does a really great job of uh, making that really simple to understand in a, you know, a couple hundred page book. So I yeah. want to be a part of the discussion. Yeah. When I was, for, when I was rereading it again over the last week or so, it, like I was kind of astonished by writing is, is far more difficult than most people realize, I think, you know, and obviously authors realize this, but any one of us who've even dabbled in writing articles or stuff like that, I mean, it's very difficult to put it all together. And one of the things that I love about this book, in addition to what you guys have just said, is that he he, he seems to like kind of tiptoe the line of not going of, of not going too far into the minutia and the detail of the history of money and economics and time preference and interest rate and Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff. But he doesn't fail to go far enough for the reader to appreciate the significance and the context and the implications of what he's talking about. And so I found myself, whether listening or reading uh, to the book, just always in, in addition to the insight of the actual words coming off the page, but just thinking like, man, he, you know, that was, exactly how he should have said that and that was exactly a sufficient amount in order to move on to the next concept and i think that in addition to other things is one of the hallmarks of a great book and why one of the reasons why this book has become such kind of an instant classic 
Yeah, I think he yeah, was and, he was yeah. smart to leave the uh, the technical explanations to the back section of the book as far as how Bitcoin itself actually operates on a technical level because that always becomes a hang up when trying to introduce people. It becomes how much do you explain the functionality of Bitcoin on that level versus what Bitcoin can do for you or do for the world. Um, it, it can be a difficult balance to strike and you know a certain amount of it sounds ridiculous if you don't understand the technical aspects, um, certain claims that are made about it. And you almost just have to take them on faith until you understand that better. So I think it's good to make the economic case and then leave the back appendix of the book for, okay, if you want to know about how a blockchain operates, how hash functions work, whatever, that you can read about that later. Just understand for now, this is what it does. And we can talk about how it does that later on. Mm-hmm. Phil, you had something? Yeah, I just want to say it's very much anti-Keynesian or just what people assume how economics works he definitely took the occam's razor approach and bitcoin is hard for newbies i mean it feels easy to me like where i I sit with it but even you know it it never stops with the rabbit holes that you can go down as to why something works or what but he just did a perfect uh occam's razor approach of like y'all said saying enough just to get the point across and just making it tangible and you know that that's really not uh that kind of presentation isn't seen in enough spaces in whatever you're into but it's also a fabulous primer on austrian economics because austrian economics is as safe says it's just economics or really it's just kind of the nature of man and of course he gets into a little bit of hayekian stuff but it's just a real nice you know, splash water over the face for just the average Joe who thinks that inflation is good. You need to be spending and everything. And it's, um, I don't know. I, I just, on that part, he did like a really great service of that because economics is, isn't hard. Frankly, economics to me is just living and making decisions that are best for you and your family. Yeah. And actually I think this is probably one of the, biggest um, impacts of this book is the concepts that safe safety and mostly the author introduced to the public lexicon and they're, they're big concepts and they have a very big impact on how you might view the world and, and, and Phil, as you were just saying, kind of how you manage your life. And I've, I've singled out a few and you guys can feel free to add and then we'll break into each one. But you know, the history of money is one that's not something that a lot of people think about. They don't think about money as kind of a progression of technology improving over time. That's just not a framework that most people have. The stock to flow ratio uh, is a concept that not very many people were familiar with before in terms of assessing different forms of money and their scarcity. And then, you know, the big one, and this was a big one for me, is I always appreciated the hard cap of Bitcoin, the 21 million hard cap, as a limit on the growth and supply. And that, that just made sense in the context or the backdrop of infinite money printing by central banks around the world. But the, the kind of notion of absolute scarcity didn't really, it didn't really sink in with me until I read this book. Then we have, Phil, as you said, the Austrian economics angle that people, you know, most people have never had a taste for at all before, never, never looked at it. And, and it's, there's a nice introduction to that there. The notion of time preference has been a very big one. I think a, a lot of people 
had not considered it before and subsequent to reading the book they had and now they actually kind of use it as a lens to assess many of the different things in their life and their decisions and how they treat you know their career or their body or, or various things um, the influence of the nature of money on the individual and the society he goes into a lot of depth in the book uh, and I don't think that's something a lot of people considered before and then finally of course Bitcoin as the future of money um, so before we break into any of those do you guys think there were any other kind of major themes that the book introduced to the public lexicon that we've that wasn't in that list? Well, fiat is kind of in the public vernacular. I can't remember what show I heard that on, but just so how fiat just so common day now, uh, where you hear on the news. So the more people that slowly get red pill just from, you know, questioning that word, it's like, Oh, it's not just the name of a, car it's actually why our money sucks yeah i i would just reiterate i don't think i have new concepts to add to your list um i would just reiterate the two most important which are stock to flow um this book unquestionably introduced that to the layperson um i don't know how much mm. you know safe as a phd level economist i don't know how much they talk about that at that level my guess is that it's probably surprisingly little um, but as far as for the average person, that wasn't discussed at all, I don't think, until this came out, at least not in those terms. Um, and that's, that's had some really huge influence, which we can get into later. And then time preference, you know, we, we have a different term for that, which is delayed gratification that's been kicking around for a long time. But I think time preference in the context of Bitcoin puts a new spin on it. Um, I think delayed gratification took some pretty hard hits because of economic reasons. Um, not as much for the cultural reasons some people think. Um, and that again, we can get into those, but th those are the two that this book touches upon that I think really things that were not out there enough until this book came along. Mike, you good? Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's good. I don't, I think there's nothing else to really add. I think that maybe, um, maybe the business cycles and the, the aspect of talk zero to one, which is Peter Thiel's book of, of once you invent a new technology, um, just needs to scale after that. So there's a same, you know, the technology is here, but it's just not evenly distributed. And, and that's the way it really feels with Bitcoin. So I think that's a, it's a concept to, to get it. That's understated in the, in the book, even though um, it came from Peter Thiel's book, zero to one uh, good concept to do in my own. Yeah. All right. So obviously this is a lot to work through. So we'll, we'll, we'll get started. But one, you know, one I think that's important for a lot of people to appreciate is the history of money and that money has been a technological progression. And he spends time on it in that book. And indeed the cover of the book is, I believe, a Yap Island stone, a, a gold bar and a, and a Bitcoin, I believe. Right. It's a and QR code. Yeah. A Bitcoin QR code. Yeah. yeah. With Bitcoin on it. Um, so, you know, how do you guys feel about, or had you, had you guys thought about the progression of money as a technology prior to this book? And how are you thinking about it today as a result of having that kind of framework overlaid on, on your perception of what money is? Yeah, it's so interesting. I remember trying to find and define inflation and try to get the inflation rates uh, for a while. Um, and it was just almost impossible to find data and information on three of money. Um, and 
know, that that important information. So like it, it was eye opening me to even realize that there's talking points or sort of that there this is a topic that you can understand and just like a fish in water, you don't understand that you're swimming through a fish. They say doesn't understand that it's swimming through water. It's the same thing with money. We don't ever stop to look at it, to inventory Dan. And I find it very interesting that we spend so much time trying to get it, but we don't understand it. And especially, you know, hedge fund managers and things of that nature that, you know, their whole business model is getting more money. They don't even understand what it is and what makes a good quality money. So um, it was eye-opening to me, the gap in thinking and uh, in the lexicon on understanding of, of human beings, even extremely in human beings like Ray Depp and Warren Buffett. There's a great uh, book. I think it's uh, I think it's called something like Money, a History or something like that. It's by uh, Neil Ferguson. But um, I'd read that years ago and I, I was familiar from that with some of the different physical forms of money um that had been over the years but i i don't think it was in, until i read this that i really understood the the yap island stone kind of brings it together to for me where it's really all just a way of accounting in a ledger um or it's representative of that ledger and bitcoin is the sort of the platonic form of that all it is is a ledger there's no such thing as holding a bitcoin physically um you know, even if you have an open dime or something like that, all that is is just pointing you to a place in the ledger. Um, there's nothing truly physical about that possession. Um, but the when you think about the Yap Island stones, like that's really all they were. You didn't carry those stones around with you. It was just there was this mental ledger that everybody had of what belonged to who, and the stones were just there so it couldn't get out of control. They were they were kind of the cap. Um, to produce them, you had to do real work. And, you know, I'm not trying to be cute with this, but that was the proof of work, getting that stone over there. Um, but the real monetary system was just what everybody kept in their head. It was just the ledger. And um, I think I kind of had a little light bulb go off about that when I was when I was reading this. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find or found interesting about the history of money, and I, I, I kind of uh, studied around the periphery in different books and stuff, but again, not, it had never really kind of coalesced in such a, a a clear manner prior to the book. But what that history of money, uh, in addition to being interesting and kind of allowing you to see the evolution of monies, and you know, not as a side note, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it in passing, is just why you you begin to see in these examples the Yap Island stones and the agribeads you begin to see why it's so important that money has certain properties because SAFE gives examples of how these monies were abused and they were abused for a variety of reasons, but ultimately it comes down to their properties uh, you know, weren't sufficiently able to resist abuse. So in many cases it was you know, smaller local populations or societies like the you know, island nations or places in Africa that were using these very um, primitive forms of money and Europeans came and were able to mass produce uh, the money more easily. And as a result, they were able to manipulate the system as it were. But this, you know, seeing the history of money in this context and, and seeing how much, how important it was to continue iterating on an improved form of money because of, of the kind of pressure to abuse the system that would inevitably be put on the object of the greatest desire in society, which is money. 
um, it allows you to see the scale of what we're currently in the middle of. And so, you know, so if, we're, if we truly are at the precipice of the emergence of a substantially better form of money than anything we've ever had, then I think the examples that SAFE gives in the book uh, and how those played out allows you to appreciate what's happening now so much more. And from my perspective, and probably from yours as well, it gets you extremely excited because you realize the gravity of what it means to have not only a better form of money emerge, because that's always a big deal, if, if it's at all, you know, if it's better enough that the market will adopt it, but to have such a, a form of money emerge that has the properties at least, and we'll have to wait to see how this plays out in the real world over the next hundred years or so, but has the properties and thus the potential to be a dramatically better form of money than anything we've ever used. And so that, that historical context that he gives really allows you to kind of place, appreciate that in the proper way. Yeah. I, I wanted to add the, the biggest, I guess, mind shattering thing about this whole thing is learning how money is and is not a hallucination. So basically the, the monies that he was talking about basically fail due to coercion from an outside party. But with Bitcoin, as we'll talk about, basically removes that re, re, um, return on violence, as y'all talked about on the Sovereign Individual episode. But what it also does is gives power back to the people because they're able to maintain their individual property rights where, again, violence isn't even an answer. But let's get back to the whole idea of why or why isn't it a hallucination or everyone agrees to use it. Well, the reason you got to ask that next question, why is it a hallucination that everyone agrees to use it? You get into the properties of what is it that makes a good money? And, of course, Bitcoin is everything that, that gold isn't. It can't be... It, it can't be inflated. It can't be faked. You can't just bring a bunch of bees off the boat and you know flood an economy with fake bitcoins because your node will say piss off. Um, but just th that concept of of diving deep into you know why it, comparing that hallucination, if you will, of what a good money is versus fiat, where fiat is the real hallucination because we trust you know someone carrying around Benjamins is going to get, get that guy pretty far for that day or week or however high or low his time preference is and what he just decides to do with that money. But it's also, um, I lost my train of thought. Crap. No worries. I, for, for me, one of the things that you got me thinking, John, is, is that like one of the big takeaways for me, um, it wasn't talked as much in the book is it's the risk-free asset. And that is a fundamental thing in finance to be able to understand what your risk-free asset is when you're comparing it to a, an alternative investment, which is crazy because, <clears throat> you know, there's obviously so much upside, but the idea is that it's the asset that you want to have your money in because there's the least amount of risk associated with it. No one can hyperinflate it away. No one can dilute it. No one can steal it from you. Um, there's a lot of things going on there, but with almost every other asset, you know, if you're looking at real estate, it can be taxed, gold, it can be stolen, um, you know, and the list goes on and you start to analyze Bitcoin and a risk assessment, it clearly becomes the risk-free asset. 
and you start to compare it to other things like money in the bank, for example, where if you had gold in a bank, it's at more risk. And if you have US dollars in the bank or Bolivar, it's much more at risk. I mean, and that's a saying that we used to say, you know, to, to infer there's no risk, right? And it's crazy to think that Bitcoin might be the risk-free asset. In other words, that there's very little to no risk in owning the asset um, where it gets confiscated away. And I think <clears throat> that to me is what my big takeaway from the book is that economic law is on the side of Bitcoin and economic law or more maybe even principle will win out in the end. Sound money will win. And so to think about it through that lens obviously gives you confidence, you know, 5,000 years of, of monetary history condensed in a 200 or 300 page book kind of gives you that confidence in, in the asset class. And then also puts it in perspective that, you know, how much of a risk-free asset uh, it is. And then you compare it, you know, again, you compare it to other things. And then the upside potential is also of course so high because now you're understanding what a store of value asset is and it's you know, potentially a 400 trillion dollar store of value market um and i and i think that is just something that is is really underrated um you know with that law and i, and I also think you know i kind of compare it or think about it like you know if you're investing in microsoft or thinking about that as a stock in you know the 90s you didn't know how big microsoft could be or the internet would be but there's a very good addressable market in the store value market. And then you understand the, the economic laws are going to push sound money or Bitcoin kind of to the top of the list and it'll win out in the end. It just needs a certain amount of time. You can say how long it's going to be, but there's one thing that's pretty much guaranteed and it will win. So you can say that over 10 years or you can say a hundred years, but um, you know, I'd much rather be in an asset class that, that is safe and you're waiting for the herd to come to you rather than the other way around. So that, that was, um, probably the biggest kind of takeaway that, you know, I think, you know, was for me and I would impart on other, other people that read the book. Sounded pretty confident there, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when you have economics on your side and a well-written book, you can just, yeah, you know, it's, it's great. I think some people might hear that and they may go, risk-free <laughs> asset, what the hell are you talking about? It's super volatile and it's not guaranteed and all that kind of stuff. So I think right. you were implying it in perhaps in the later adoption phase where, and I, I think this is a very good point, is that not only is the risk-free assessment broad, so it's not just risk of, of dilution, as is, a, you know, that's when people talk about like a currency or gold being risk-free, that's kind of what they're re re referring to, that the volatility is, is quite low, not easily mm -hmm. diluted, et cetera. But uh, as you mentioned, and then Phil, as you mentioned as well, um, and this is a theme that was born out in the sovereign individual, which, which we covered last time, is that it changes the dynamic of violence as well. And so that is obviously mm -hmm. a risk factor when you're considering your savings too. But you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to think, and I think this book helps to impress this upon the reader, what has happened to society as a result of not having a reliable risk-free asset to store your surplus time and resources, you know, because it, 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 it makes it so that you're forced to deal in a money whereby you're losing value over time and in some cases quite quickly, which then enforces you, if you have any desire to maintain your capital at all, to go down the risk spectrum, right? To go out into the market to try to gain better yield just to preserve your capital. You, all you want is a way to store your surplus uh, wealth, right? Your surplus you know, energy expenditure, your surplus work. That's all a lot of people want. 
but they're forced because of the, the poor quality of the money that's being used in the economy to take on more risk just to preserve their wealth. So I, I, I think it, it should be the case, and thankfully with Bitcoin, I think it's going to be that we have a renewed way of just storing our, 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 our surplus work in a, in a container that's not very leaky and that we don't have to worry about taking on more risk just to preserve its value. Um, but I want to add to Yeah, go ahead. I just want to add to that, that your surplus is the ultimate form of cash because it's yours, no one else's and cash gives you optionality in life. It gives you the choice. It gives you the, the, the road to choose what is going to be best suited for you. Whereas in fiat, you have no choice. You have to use fiat because is it, it, is, it is by government, like violent decree, and you have no other choice. And oh, by the way, you're going to lose value in it every single year. So, you know, that's the beauty of what actual cash is. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you were planning on, on getting into this, but, you know, what makes money valuable or what makes cash cash is in it of itself that you can hold it and that it is yours and that you can rely on its store of value to transact whenever and you have that freedom and the optionality so let me uh let me read this quote from the book to well see. actually just one one thing on that because I, I think it's worth addressing uh, the impact of of going out on that risk spectrum right as most people have their money in the stock market right now and that's been extremely volatile and dropping you know what happened in 2008 ruined a lot of people so they assume that their asset was in a risk-free asset the stock market always goes up type of attitude and then when they lose their life savings and it's too late to recoup it they haven't done that risk ass assessment everyone's just been putting their money in the stock market um and i mean you see that with certain stocks just the pe ratios are off the charts where i mean it's just it's 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 maddening and they and these unfortunately people are gonna lose their shirts in some of these in some of these stocks, but they think in the equate, back to what Phil was saying, is like their money in the stock market with savings as opposed to actual savings in an actual like dollar asset. So I I don't that I just don't feel like that should be understated because people don't know the risk they're taking and it is gonna ruin their lives, unfortunately. Yeah. And you maybe, can maybe a term that would be better than risk free is internally predictable. Bitcoin is the most consistently go. internally predictable asset you know what's going to happen you know what the rules are you're not waiting on the chairman of bitcoin to make their announcement as to how many coins are going to be issued next month there's none of that these are the rules and those shall be the rules so it's there's nothing that's that predictable well i, I say risk-free because that's what warren buffett uses to as, as an opportunity cost is a two-year treasury uh, and so he uses that as his risk-free asset which is crazy because the government's bankrupt. Um, but anyway, that's another conversation where it's like it's risk free up until the day it isn't. So right, exactly. So it's just it's it's baffling to me that you know back on the opposite end of the risk free spectrum, like you've got the hardest asset that wins out over time, sound money that's relatively guaranteed to win over a certain amount of time, and then on the convert, like on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have fiat currency which is guaranteed to fail on some timeline in the future and you just don't know when that is. And I think like those two things, it's like, where do you want to put your money something that's guaranteed to lose or something that's guaranteed to win? And I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, 
you know, the interesting thing about money is that value, the, the value that it's intended to store will always find a home somewhere else. Like I almost think of it like a hermit crab, you know, and if once the shell gets, you know, dilapidated or it outgrows it or whatever, it goes and finds another one. And so if, if the money is a poor vehicle for storing value, i.e. if it's easily diluted or it is diluted, then that value will seep out to everywhere else, into the stock market and the real estate market, to any other place that does a better job at preserving it. Now, unfortunately, through that process, we get a lot of income inequality because certain people are aware of that process and they are able to capitalize on it and other people are not, which again is why it's so important to have, you know, whatever we want to call it, that risk-free asset that, you know, even if you're the, you know, the ultimate layman who doesn't do, want to do anything but work and save, that you have an ability to do that in, in a way that's not going to be detrimental to you long-term, that's going to be able to, to, to the extent possible, preserve your value and not and you, you don't have to take on further risk or learn about other ways at, at managing your money uh, I like I calling to- it outsider trading as opposed to insider training it's it's still kind of insider because bitcoiners are a very small minority for now hopefully fingers crossed but it is kind of the unknown but very public secret of what Bitcoin is you know the content that's out there to learn about it and to save your savings. So I don't know. I just thought, thought that was a funny connection. I, uh, I'm going to read this passage and this is kind of breaking into the Austrian economics and time preference discussion a little bit long, but I'll, uh, I'll work my way through it uh, as quickly as possible. So it goes like this. Scarcity is the fundamental starting point of all economics and it's most important implication it, or sorry. And it's most important implication is that everything has an opportunity cost in the capital market. The opportunity cost of capital is foregone consumption. And the opportunity cost of consumption is foregone capital investment. The interest rate is the price that regulates this relationship. As people demand more investments, the investment rate rises, incentivizing more savers to set aside money, more, more of their money for savings. As the interest rate drops, it incentivizes investors to engage in more investments, to invest in more technologically advanced methods of production with a longer time horizon. A lower interest rate then allows for the engagement in methods of production that are longer and more productive. Society moves from fishing with rods to fishing with oil, oil-powered boats. As an economy advances and becomes increasingly sophisticated, the connection between physical capital and the loanable funds market does not change in reality, but it does get obfuscated in the minds of people. A modern economy with a central bank is built on ignoring this essential trade-off, assuming that banks can finance investment with new money without consumers having to forego consumption. The link between savings and loanable funds is severed to the point where it is not even taught in the economics textbooks anymore, let alone the disastrous consequences of ignoring it. As the central bank manipulates interest rates, there will inevitably be a discrepancy between savings and loanable funds. Central banks are generally trying to spur economic economic growth and investment and to increase consumption. So they tend to increase the money supply and lower the interest rate, resulting in a larger quantity of loanable funds than savings. At these artificially low interest rates, businesses take on more debt to start projects that take, take on more debt to start projects than savers put aside to finance these investments. In other words, the value of consumption deferred is less than the value of the capital borrowed. Without enough consumption deferred, there will not be enough capital, cap, capital land and labor resources diverted away from consumption goods toward higher order capital goods at the earliest stages of production. There is no free lunch after all, and if consumers save less, 
there will have to be less capital available for investors, creating new pieces of paper and digital entries to paper over the deficiency in savings does not magically increase society's capital, physical capital stock. It only devalues the existing money supply and distorts prices. And I, I took out this passage from the book, long as it may be, because obviously we are in a period where this is blatantly obvious today, where interest rates are being uh, manipulated, highly manipulated to keep them low, to foster greater consumption, and you know, likely doing a lot of damage to the real economy in the process of doing so. So I wanted to put that out there because it's relevant today and get, get, get your guys' thoughts on it. I have quite a few thoughts on this, actually. Um, so we, we started off talking about um, Austrian economics and the separation of, of government and money a little bit. Um, I have a sort of an overarching theory that if Bitcoin does become adopted as the money worldwide, um, it's going to be this incredible clarifier in economics. Um, so much of what you're talking about, what governments are doing with the money, is an attempt to to game reality, um, just to, to game the system, to not have to face up to, to sort of mathematical reality. Um, I think as Bitcoin becomes adopted as, as the money and the separation of money and government continues, there's going to be a new understanding of economics that's more along those Austrian lines. And it's going to be seen more as something akin to physics, where you don't have this guy's economics and this economics and this you just have economics and much like in physics, really there's only one physics. It's just how granular do you want to get on it? Um, but there's only one world and one reality. Economics is going to be one reality. There's not 30 different ways that things can work. There's really the one underlying reality and then all of the games that we play to avoid that, which is what you're seeing with the fed. Um, what you were just describing with, with this shell game that banks are doing it's just a way of avoiding the underlying base layer reality. There, there's no, well, this is one way of doing it and that's one way of doing it. No, there's only the one number. There's only the one reality. Now, some of, some of us can maintain that game longer than others, depending on if your country has the global reserve currency. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, you only have that one reality. Yeah, anything, Blake? Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to our, you know, and they talk about, and maybe we get into the time preference where you're not thinking, human beings aren't thinking generationally. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll speak for, for I, I guess I'll speak for my generation. Like, you know, people, people aren't focused on getting married and having a family and thinking long term. Um, you know, I just moved in uh, into an area where, you know, I, I talk to people and they're not thinking long term. They're not thinking in three year timelines. And so it really does focus having printing all that money and lowering the interest rates just gets people very short-term oriented. Um, and when you realize that that's that like money can impact how your friends think, uh, and make them more short-term oriented, um, you know, well, it's frustrating is actually one, one thing, you know, pisses me off. Um, but, uh, we have a solution, so we'll figure it out. Um, so no, no, it's, um, it, you know, what you said, you kind of, I'm assuming would, I don't want to say bore most people, but, you know, it's relatively confusing capital goods expenditure, but, you know, really you're just, you know, building for a future, you're building a home to live in in the future. And if you are always trying to 
you know, build a tent or pitch a tent, you're never building the foundation for your home. And, that, and that's kind of really what the analogy would be with that particular, um, you know, economic uh, uh, passage that you mentioned. So, um, you know, you want to, you want to focus on generational kind of uh, buildings and structures and thoughts and, and things of that nature, which is why the Bitcoin community is amazing because they're always thinking hundred year timelines. Yeah. Yeah, John, are you ready to talk about time preference with this or? Well, I'm going to break, I'm going to break into it right now, but I guess I could have just said right now, economics is predicated on spending more than you actually have. That's basically what that long passage was about and (laughs) what you have to do, the kind of squirrely business you have to do to innate, you know, to make that happen. And it ends in, well, destroying the, the, the money on which that economy is predicated. And I think we're seeing that in many, many different manifestations right now. But um, I want to, I want to break into time preference because this and this is a broader theme of the book that again it kind of impressed upon me if not for the first time definitely most clearly is how the money that is is used in a society is um has a kind of subconscious impact on how people behave um and a lot of people would have a problem with that uh, notion but it it definitely seems to be the case and i think the bitcoin community is representative of that and of course it's i'm generalizing but a lot of people tend to suggest that they've changed certain elements of their life. And one of the reasons why they've done that, or one of the motivating factors, is that they've started to look at things through the lens of a longer time horizon, i.e. they've, they've lowered, their, lowered their time preference. And so uh, I want to break into that now, and I'll, I'll read a, another quote from the book, much shorter, I promise you. So, the, uh, da, 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 da. actually, I'll say the interest rate. No, I'll read this one. So, because time preference is basically how the interest rate is is determined, and I hadn't looked at it really through that uh, at that lens before, but it says the interest rate in a free market for capital is positive, because people's positive time preference means that nobody would part with money unless he could receive more of it in the future. A society with a lot of individuals with low time preference is likely to have plenty of savings bring the interest rate down and providing plenty of capital for firms to invest, generating significant economic growth for the future. As a society's time preference increases, people are less likely to save. Interest rates would be high and producers would find less capital to borrow. Societies that live in peace and have secure property rights and a large degree of economic freedom are likely to have low time preference as they provide a strong incentive for individuals to discount their future less. And I think this is critical to understanding what's happening now. But one final quote before we go. As the reduction in intergenerational inheritance has reduced the strength of the family as a unit, government's unlimited checkbook has increased its ability to direct and shape the lives of people, allowing an increasingly important role to play in more aspects of individuals' lives. The family's ability to finance the individual has been eclipsed by the state's largesse resulting in declining incentives for maintaining a family. Now, I know I dipped my toe in, in, a, in the kind of cultural political aspect of this discussion, which we'll return to, but I just wanted to bring it up because we are seeing in society broadly today um, probably a, a, a going away from the nuclear family to some degree, and few people would understand the cause of that, or at least one of the contributing factors, as being related to the type of money that we're using in society and in, in, uh, in different countries around the world today. But I think as, as we've probably all explored as a result of reading this book and being in this space, that your, your time preference and how you see your future has a, a fairly large impact on, on how you see the family unit, whether or not you decide to 
um, you know, construct one for yourself that there's many variables involved, but it, it definitely plays a role. So I'll hand it off to you guys. Yeah, real quick, just to add to the interest rate thing, what I wanted to say on the, the last uh, paragraph, but it goes back to price signals because if you're saving money, interest rates are going to be higher. I mean, assuming everyone starts saving money and that price signal is saying that people are valuing their savings. They're being diligent and conservative with the money they earn and their time preference is low, but the interest rate is high. And what that is, is signaling to entrepreneurs and investors to, you know, it's kind of like undercutting like a monopoly in a way where those interest rates are going to be cut down because they're saying those high, higher numbers are signaling to people to start investing because people have all the savings. And it's kind of like in a way people, normal people are signaling out to, you know, everyone in the world, like, Hey, in a way, like we're ready to, to spend, but you know, that investment becomes businesses and just more production productivity occurs. And, you know, you, you only really have that in w- with the sound money standard. And then, of course, that translates into the family because if everyone's thinking the same way, then you have a lot more uh, fruits of your labor to invest. But unfortunately, people are in that high time preference mentality where they're not really looking, you know, forward to the, the future and, you know, they probably don't have enough saved for their kids to go to school or whatever avenue they choose. So it's definitely systematic and an issue. And, you know, bring it to a personal level for me, what happened in 2007 and 2008, <laughs> I had a real estate finance degree. So I always wanted to get into real estate, you know, ever since I was a kid. And then I graduated with a real estate finance degree and the recession happened, the great recession happened, starting with the real estate market. And that shook me. Um, and you know, I didn't know how, when the next recession would happen and, and how to save and prepare for that. In other words, if you're putting your money in the stock market and that takes a 75% dip, then you don't know how much savings you have and you can't plan on that. And that really is going to impact your mentality of being able to provide for a family and having two or three kids, especially if you're going to lose 70, 75% of your, your net worth in the stock market or something along those lines. And Bitcoin is the first time like it's come around where you can be guaranteed your percentage of Bitcoin, your one coin, and it won't be diluted away. It won't be taken away. And so, you know, I've seen that in my own transition where now I can be confident that I'm going to have an asset in the future or something that I can even pass down to my great, great grandkids. that isn't going to be inflated away. Um, and, and that's, that's huge. I mean, now I'm, I'm making trade-offs and I can make trade-offs with my future self you know, in 10 years, confidently knowing that I'm going to have some type of savings in some form or fashion. And that is life changing because you don't even have security. Even if you're relatively successful, you know, the market goes south, you lose your job and you lose again, 75% of your you know, net worth in the stock market or something like that. You know, the great depression happens again, you're screwed. There's nothing you can put your money in. Um, and then Bitcoin comes along and now you're like, no, I'm, I'm fine. It's a risk-free asset. There's, you know, this will be around for 10,000 years. So, um, it, it really, I've seen it change my life, um, drastically. So time preference is the dark side of that shell game. We were talking about a few minutes ago, low time preferences, um, where you can keep all those balls in the air and game the system for so long. But, um, 
the uh, the downside of it is that there are people who will be screwed over by that. Um, there's a negative effect to it. I, I'm assuming most people who are watching this have heard of the Kantian effect, um, but you know, for those who haven't, there's this idea that if the closer you are to the spout of money, to the spigot, the more you benefit, and everyone from downstream from that benefits less and less and less, and maybe gets screwed over. Um, this game with pumping more cash into the system to let's say to keep up real estate prices. Um, it allows houses to be priced more or higher than they ordinarily would be able to be uh, because banks are, are able to give those higher rates of loans. Therefore, houses are more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Phil was talking about price signals. You know, the price isn't just simply what somebody says something costs. In the aggregate, the price is the true indicator of well, what are people willing to pay for this? If you keep pumping extra money into that system, people can pay more and more and more. But if you are not on the higher end of incomes, if you, if you can't get those loans, you're getting screwed. Um, you know, people talk about this with millennials. The big thing a, a couple of years ago on the internet was the joke about um, there was a real estate agent, I think he was Australian, talked about avocado toast and millennials can't have homes because they're spending their money on avocado toast. And people went back pretty hard on him. Like, well, my avocado toast is $3. How many orders of that for me to, uh, to buy this house? And you look at the diversion be or divergence between what people are making and what things cost. And it goes like this. Shout out to uh, WTF happened in 1971.com uh, starting decades ago. And it's not, well, these kids these days, they just don't spend their money on the right stuff. What people are making now in that generation versus what a new house costs them does not work out anymore. It's not the same. You know, if your grandpa is telling you, well, I bought a house when I was 21 and right, because you could do that. You now cannot right. do that. And the reason you can't do that is because of this excess printing of money is making prices go up higher than they would otherwise be able to. Um, I think people have this concept that like, well, if, if houses, you know, this house is $800,000 and if the bank couldn't give a loan to anybody for that, then no one would ever be able to buy that house. Well, no, those houses wouldn't be $800,000. They, people would still be able to buy those houses. Um, they just wouldn't be getting to these outsized, these outsized prices. But we now have a generation of baby boomers who want these people that they're paying in their, in their businesses, $13 an hour to come buy their $800,000 house when they're ready to retire. And the math doesn't work out on that. And then, that is because that goes back to this system. It's not about kids these days are lazy or something like that. It's about this money printing, this continuing effect has allowed the divergence between what people earn and what these things cost to get completely out of control very unnaturally. There used to be an organic tie. Hard money was that organic tie between those things. We've completely cut that tie and things are off the rails now. And that's why this is happening. Yeah. And I think what's been said in, in two forms, one, in terms of, um, you know, kind of being on an accelerating hamster wheel, that sense of like, you keep, you know, working, but it's, it's getting further and further away from you rather than closer. That's one of the things that I think impacts people's behavior and perspective on, on longer term thinking. And then uh, what Blake was saying, just the sense that there's, you know, owning something, truly owning something that you can be certain will be there 50, 100, whatever years in the future that you can have some sense of reliance on. Uh, that is, is absent in many cases today for many people as well. And so what it makes me think is, 
the kind of insidious nature of what the, the, this, the, the form of money in use in an economy, the kind of subconscious sense that it makes people feel, right? So most people aren't saying, you know, I, I'm acting this way, I'm not starting a family, or I'm, you know, doing whatever high time preference behavior, I'm not looking at things for the long term, because uh, the wealth gap is growing, and I'm not able, my wages aren't able to keep pace with prices, and uh, I don't have a way to store my, you know, uh, excess capital long term. Like, most people don't think of it in those terms. They just have a felt sense that like, I, I can't do this and I, I can do that. And what's, what's really trippy about that is if, if we understand it the way that we've been articulating in that these, you know, this mechanism has a very, very real and substantial impact on those things, you know, what is the kind of what becomes the relationship of free will and choice uh, on these matters at least? Because if we're saying that, you know, the impact of, of let's say the money is so insidious at, at, at giving people a sense and then they act out that sense and to, you know, um, that they're feeling without really consciously knowing why they're doing so. I mean, you get into some pretty murky waters of how, um, how the money really kind of um, possesses in a way, or at least, you know, kind of, you know, kind of, inspires like automata or automatic behavior from people and kind of relieves them of their agency in, in many cases. Now, I don't mean it entirely because obviously we, you know, we always still have the manner of choice, but I'm basically just saying the fact that much of this is subconscious is making people feel like um, they're making these choices irrespective of outside factors, which obviously is rarely the case with any choice, but in such, you know, such examples of, of such important things in people's lives that they're making these choices in a somewhat of a blind manner is, uh, is really unfortunate. And, I, and I'll, I'll read a quote from, I'm going to butcher the hell out of this name, but it's Huygen von Boom Boggart, I think is, uh, <laughs> that's what it sounded okay, like from it, the audio book. Wait, is that on? <laughs> uh, yeah. He says, uh, the interest rate in a nation reflects its cultural value. And of course, the interest rate being determined by time preference. Uh, the, high, the higher the people's intelligence and moral strength, the more they saved and the lower the interest rate. Thoughts? It's all about if you think there's a future. Right. You know, um, the, uh, it goes back to the avocado toast thing. People aren't spending their, uh, their money on little luxuries because they don't care about having that house or that family or that solid future. It's because that's out of the picture for them anyway. Um, you know, for a lot of people, realistically, they're never going to be able to afford a nice home under the current system. Uh, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on degrees that don't pay well, and they're always going to be chasing that debt. They're always going to be living in the one room apartment so when they buy, you know, an expensive purse or go to an you know, expensive restaurant, that may not be the most wise choice, but that's not the real reason why they can't buy a house or settle down and have a family. Like the money, it's not even close to that kind of money. Well, uh, it's, the, the real right. reason is the money manipulation. And, and yeah, knowing that, even if you don't understand that in a hard, like I understand economics standpoint, you have a sense in the back of your mind that, I'm not getting anywhere and five years more of this, I'm still not getting anywhere. And that, that has for sure an effect on your behavior and your psychology. Yeah. And, and you can see that with, you know, the, the example that I think about is my grandparents, like 
was a teacher, history teacher, and was able to buy um, a house with his, his, for his wife and three ki four kids. And they sustained themselves on a teacher's salary and bought a home in his 20s and provided for a whole family. You know, that's laughable if you were to say that to a history teacher now. They're like, you couldn't have two history teachers even provide, buy a home, let alone provide for, a, you know, one spouse to stay at home and take care of four kids. And, you know, and, and that's where you see, you know, we might be making 10 times as much money, but it buys 100 times less. You yeah, know, who cares how much? Home. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't even believe we're talking about avocado toast. We're talking about an avocado. You know what I mean? This is food. Like, it's not... It's not like, it's not some crazy thing. It's an avocado. Like, it's like, if you're, yeah. our grandparents were listening to talk about like, you know, spending extra money on an avocado, it'd be laughable. It's like, that's, that's a joke. And yeah, if you're telling people in effect, you know, yeah. avoid all tiny luxuries and run the numbers on like that. Food. Maybe when you're 75, you can buy a house. Yeah. No, who wants to live like that? You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, this is a subject that I like to dig into a lot just because, you know, it's such a, it's so endemic to society today, but everything that we've just articulated about uh, how the nature of the money affects the life that people can have and the anxiety that it instills in people and the manifestations of that, that we see, you know, Al, you mentioned, you know, people's psychology and their mental health. I mean, it's, it's not even a stretch. I mean, it's a very real and easy to illustrate causal relationship. And so we, we shouldn't, I know we don't, but it's frustrating to look out in the world and hear people talk about these major issues of inequality and uh, mental health and all this kind of stuff and know that there's a, you know, there's a root cause and thread that's tying them all together. That's having a very del del deleterious impact on all of them. And if you could fix that root cause, you know, Bitcoin fixes this. If you could fix that root cause, then you'd see a lot of improvement probably fairly rapidly in those domains. But if you don't, then it's all just window dressing. It's all, you know, you're, you're, you're just patching one hole and having two spring up on you. And so it's, um, I mean, and it's so overt now. Like we really are, for, for anyone that's seeing the world through the lens that this book kind of presents and allows you to, we're living in uh, extremely crazy times. You know, you don't even, it, it's, and it, it, I always ask myself, like, where are we? You know, and that's why, like, I'm interested in, in looking at history. And I think you guys are as well, because you try to get a sense for how, how long can the kind of perversion of the system persist before, you know, it either crumbles or something, you know, something big happens to change it. And it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, right? Because that hamster wheel is spinning ever faster. So it's almost the worse it gets, it's almost the less, uh, less obvious it becomes to people, if for no other reason that they have to focus even more on keeping up and focus less on what's devolving around them. Yeah, and right. so I think that's part of the reason why these things are able to persist longer than we otherwise think they, they might if we just look at it objectively. But where do you guys you know, think we are in the devolution of, you know, the current system that we're under. I think we're closer to the end than we realize right now. Um, I think we were getting there, but I think COVID kicked it up maybe 10 years. Um, I, I think it, it brought the deadline a lot closer. And I think the extreme money printing was a huge red pill for people on that. Um, they started to realize where we're at. Combine that with Bitcoin coming along as a possible alternative. I, 
I think we are closer to the end of this system than than we realize. I think it's going to happen gradually than suddenly, as the as the phrase goes. But um, yeah, I, I think we're less than ten years away from from the end of the shell game. Um, and I can't tell you how glad I am that we have Bitcoin because it would be it would be a nightmare without that. I mean, Bitcoin is going to be so so important, not just to those of us who know about it and have some now, but it is going to literally save the world when when that happens. And that sounds like a, a bold statement, but it's once you start to understand how it can affect things and how society can degrade when you lose money. I mean, you think about Venezuela as the example, like if we had to go through what Venezuela ha- ha- went through, you know, that's what Bitcoin is saving us from. And you see those things happen and you realize. We lost you there, Blake. Thank you. Did you mute, Blake? No, I'm, I don't know what's going on. Okay. You're back. We hear you now. Okay. Um, no, that, I don't think that's an understatement that, you know, it will, could and will save the world. That's one of the things that uh, Saifedean articulates in the book is that, like, it prevents wars and it'll reduce the hyperinflations uh, or stop the hyperinflations that are happening in countries like Venezuela and prevent it from happening you know, in Germany and Weimar Republic and hopefully the United States. And so that's not, you know, that sh- is not an understatement that it, it will save the world. And we have the global reserve currency now, so it's not just one country, but it's potentially the world reserve currency hyperinflating or inflating uh, at a higher and higher rate. So I yeah. just wanted to emphasize that because I, I bet most listeners are, would just you know kind of gawk at that idea. But when you start to understand what happens when you don't have money uh, and it evaporates or hyperinflates, um, a lot of bad things happen. Venezuela and Zimbabwe and even Weimar Germany are child's play compared to what happens when the global reserve currency goes right. that route. I mean, we, right. I don't know when the last time the world saw anything like that. And especially when the entire world was on a fiat standard that, that you, you know, using that reserve currency, right? There was far more kind of disparate monetary policies, at least in, in right. episodes in the past. So they were more isolated, but now mm-hmm. we have, you know, global integrated, fiat money system predicated on effectively one currency. And, um, you know, I I think I I look to the periphery to, to, to see where we might be, you know, and we're, we're seeing relatively large economies like Turkey and Argentina and places like that. Now that it's far more difficult for them to isolate themselves from the impact of, of all this money printing, because they don't have the luxury, they don't have the exorbitant privilege as it's called that, you know, the reserve currency or other, really major currencies on major economies like the euro or the yen, et cetera, uh, have. And, um, you know, whether, and Lebanon is another case, you know, we're seeing uh, these, these central banks and these economies on the periphery kind of oscillate out of control now. And I, I have to think that that is, a, is an arbiter of, of what's to come, but it's happening on the periphery first because those smaller places are less able to, to deal with, you know, the, the issues that they're facing. Yeah, and it's because they don't have that privilege to export their inflation to some other country. Right, exactly. And yeah, like Al was saying, what does the world look like when the one country that can do that can't do that because the money literally breaks? Yeah. And I thought it was kind of haunting to hear that it's, you know, Al Al thinks it's going to happen in under a decade. Like, I sure as hell hope not, but, you know, it's hard to, to argue that. And, I've been on like a big Jeff Booth kick as of late and not only Bitcoin, but I'm just curious of how deflationary technology 
is going to propel us because if we are under 10 years to like doomsday economic doomsday and world doomsday well how fast is technology gonna kick us out of that and it is <laughs> something we can't answer you know but it, it just oh. makes me want to like you know give everything i don't have to all the bitcoin development like get the ux and the ui there but also it, it's just this really hard paradigm how you have all the stimulus going into these unicorn companies or whatever and some of them flop but then some of them become uber and you know an ai company might replace uber and yeah it's government fiat but as jeff booth talks about it or as i like to say it's kind of like the oroboro snake i think that's how it's pronounced but the snake eating itself Mm -hmm. and so really stimulus money fiat money that just gets printed from nothing or debt whatever the hell you want to describe it as that is actually going into technology that kills that beast so you you know as, as 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 soon as we might see the end we know they're going to keep printing more money so if that's the case how fast does that actually get us out of this hole and i just i just think it's to me it seems so obvious this is going to be potentially on this cycle you know within the next four years because you're looking at i'm looking at 250 trillion dollars of of debt that people are are putting their money in you know buying bonds at a one percent rate and then you're looking at bitcoin which is you know having returns of 400% a year you know i don't know the exact numbers of course you've got to you've got to you know do maybe within a rolling 8 years or something along those lines and how long is it going to take for that smart money to wake up and go i'm going to put my money in a bitcoin how many how often are you going to look at bitcoin having 400% returns annually and you're a money manager and your whole job is to allocate money and you're looking at 250 trillion dollars of bonds and you're just going to sit there on the sidelines and not put it in bitcoin and the bond market to me just is the most obvious because people are literally putting their money in as a store of value and hoping to get the 1% return with the risk of you not getting your money back at all, as, as Al mentioned. So I, I just think to me, looking through that scenario, it just becomes a lot more obvious that that, that money, that $250 trillion, not even the, the fiat currency of $100 trillion will move into Bitcoin you know, relatively quickly. Um, it's going to so. develop its own gravity field and things are going, once things really get going, it's going to accelerate and accelerate and accelerate yeah. to the point where you will not be able to believe how fast it's happening. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is terrifying. And, and again, like I think, well, this is the boat I was in in 2008. I thought, Holy crap, Holy crap. This is really crazy. You know, the response to the great financial crisis and obviously this time around, it's been probably an order of magnitude, if, if not close, larger. And, you know, central bank balance sheets have, have increased anywhere between 100 and 500 percent, which is the case in, in Canada. Money supply in, in the past 12 months, I think in the, in the U.S., it's upwards of 20 percent. and It's in the teens in many places. And I, I, there's almost this like, I wonder because of the coming out of the great financial crisis and the extreme measures taken there and having had a decade of, you know, obviously there was an increasing wealth wealth gap and everything else, but of relative stability, I wonder how much that's influencing our thinking about this. Like, yeah, this will be a problem 10 years from now, but we just need to, you know, we need to get out of the crisis mode here. And I wonder if, you know, these things, 
are not as easily controlled as, as all the people that attempt to control them would like to think. And so, uh, and of course, the presence of Bitcoin actually puts pressure and, and will continue to pr- put more and more pressure on the legacy system. And so I wonder when we start to see kind of runaway consumer prices. I know the velocity of money right now is very low. I know deflationary forces are, are maybe muting that effect. But, uh, you know, when it, I feel like when it comes, it's going to come with a vengeance and um, it'll be very disruptive. I think we need to turn to history as our guide for some of this because as human beings, we're not really mentally equipped to consider things that are that big that are outside of our own life experience. Um, You know, if you go back to my parents' generation and, you know, even to my grandparents, um, they largely, my parents virtually entirely lived in the post-World War II American order. And we are so used to that being the norm. And, John, I think you in Canada, you similar, similar situation. Uh, we're just so used to that being the norm in terms of foreign policy, in terms of economics, especially that we can't think outside of that. But if you start looking back just a little bit further to before that, all of a sudden you see, whoa, how fast things can, can change. You know, uh, my grandparents aren't around anymore, but, it, it, you know, I wish they were so I could ask them what was life like for you in uh, 1928 versus 1930, you know, and in 1928, did you have any idea that it could be like how, how that got um, or ask some, some British, you know, ask the British aristocracy. What did you, you know, if you're a 20 year old British aristocrat in, um, you know, 1911, what were your, what were your prospects? What did you think was going on? And they just, they were living, you know, they were living the life. They, they had like the London clubs and all their servants and their estates. And three years later, that was totally different. Those guys were all dying in trenches and most of their friends of that generation never came back. And the aristocracy was shattered by that. And they, if you had told them that a few years before, you would have been a crazy person. If you'd sat at a dinner table and said, this is what's going to happen in a few years, you're, you're a nut job. And I think for a lot of us in Bitcoin, that's how we feel trying to talk to, to friends and family now about this is what it could look like when, when this fiat system comes to a screeching halt, things are going to get insane really fast. And they just think you're crazy. They think you're totally insane, but mm, you know, it's going to be a very, uh, a very bittersweet sort of thing here because you're going to be you're going to be among the people who saw this coming and made preparations for it and, and had a plan B. Um, but it's going to be in a very ugly world. And I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's going to be fast. And I think we're, we're not equipped psychologically as humans to think of things changing that dramatically that fast. You've got to look to history books for that. Yeah. And I'll read a, another passage from the book here because these are themes obviously that we, we discussed in the sovereign individual uh, book review, because we were looking at the kind of almost predictability of these massive changes over time and some of the reasons why. And I think we're all, I think a lot of us Bitcoiners would maybe be apolitical. You know, we think, you know, Bitcoin is the the best lever for change, not a a red, blue, you know, popularity contest. Um, But nevertheless, politics is front and center in a big way today. And I don't just think it's because Trump is a bombastic uh, personality. I I think there's legitimate, uh, logical, objective reasons why that's the case. And I want to read a passage from the book that, uh, that touches on that a bit. So it goes, in his sweeping history of five centuries of Western civilization, from dawn to decadence, Jack 
Jack Barzan identifies the end of World War I as the crucial turning point to begin the decadence, decay, and demise of the West. It was after this war that the West suffered from the, what Barzan terms the great switch, the replacement of liberalism by liberality, the imposter claiming its mantle, but in reality being its exact opposite. Liberalism triumphed on the principle that the best governed government is that which governs least. Now for all the Western nations, political wisdom has recast this idea of liberty into liberality. The shift has thrown the vocabulary into disorder. Whereas liberalism held the role of government in allowing individuals to live in liberty and enjoy the benefits and suffer the consequences of their actions, liberality was the radical notion that it was government's role to allow individuals to indulge in all their desires while protecting them from the consequences. Socially, economically, and politically, the role of government was recast as the wish-granting genie, and the population merely had to vote for what it wanted and have it fulfilled. Um, and I, I teased wow. out that quote because I think we'd probably agree that um, whether or not that was the exact point which this happened and whether it was easily or clearly delineated, I think we are, you know, we, we're seeing a, a hyper-politicization of, uh, of affairs around the world today, uh, unsurprisingly in response to the kind of the, the slow and increasing degradation of the system, the economic systems uh, that govern our, um, you know, that we engage in, um, because it's not, it, it's almost like the economic system is not sufficiently serving the needs of people anymore. It's kind of been broken beyond repair and people are seeking desperately for other solutions to these things. And, and politics is only, uh, you know, too, too willing to step in and, and at least feign solutions to these issues that many people are, are having. There is a mindset that a lot of people have right now. I think that if only, if only my side had complete control of everything, we could just vote to make everything good. And that's where you, that's where you get into that sort of reality and physics thing I was talking about earlier, where it's completely divorced from the idea that there's this underlying base layer and it's not about, you can't just vote reality to not be reality. And I think, some people who might not otherwise have really considered that before are starting to get in on that because of this extraordinary money printing. There, there is a larger sense of, well, how's that going to work? Um, I don't think it's fully hit everybody yet, but, but yeah, there, you know, it was, um, de Tocqueville said the same thing as, as that quote you just read, where there's this, um, possibly fatal flaw in democracy where people figure out that they can vote to give themselves more money. And then it's just, that's the ticking time bomb there. Bitcoin fixes that. I know it's cute to say Bitcoin fixes this, but it does. You cannot vote to make yourselves more Bitcoin. It does fix that problem. It doesn't yeah. fix every problem, but it, it, Bitcoin creates the best framework to fix all of the problems. I, be, I believe uh, in the book he references as well, again, summarizing, um, that when you combine soft money with democracy, the end point is basically the impoverishment of the population because uh, the ability to create money out of thin air by those in power and basically rob the productive capacity of, of the economy and mismanage it uh, ultimately leads to that end. Now, whether it takes 20 years or 200 years, that's uh, a matter of maybe prudence and how it's managed and uh, who's at the helm. But that seems to be almost a, you know, like an unavoidable outcome. Unless you have a system that can't be gamed. <laughs> All right. So uh, another 
you know, coming towards the end here, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on, which I think is maybe one of the more controversial aspects of the book. Um, he doesn't spend too much time on it, but it is part of the kind of uh, theme of how money influences culture. And as we discussed time preference already, but safe and in, in kind of safe's um, characteristic, you know, sharp uh, attitude in some lines, he's very critical of uh, some modern manifestations of things like art and culture and music and, and things like this. And he's, he doesn't mince his words, right? He doesn't mince his words. And he suggests that this is a manifestation of people having a high tie preference as a result of the money in use in the economy. And, you know, many people have taken issue with that and say, well, art is subjective and you don't know what you're talking about. And I like modern art galleries and all this kind of stuff. But I think the, the point he is making is that, people are far more incentivized and feel comfortable spending a large degree of time either honing their craft or producing you know, a piece of artwork or, or producing a product when they have kind of an underlying faith running in the background that it's going to be worth their time to do so. They're not going to lose so much ground during the course of their training or their production that it'll be detrimental to them and that, you know, things won't have changed that much in the interim period, right? So they have that confidence that, um, you know, they're not on quicksand effectively uh, versus people uh, operating in a, a soft money system. And again, most often this is subconscious that feel that sense that things have to be done quickly. You know, I, I need to get it out quickly and I need to sell it quickly and I need to, you know, spend that money quickly. Um, and so he was, um, you know, he praised earlier periods, you know, the classical periods of artwork and Renaissance era and was critical of today. What, what did you guys think of his analysis of uh, kind of art and culture in the book? So two things on that. Let's start with soft money. Under soft money, you got college kids coming out with thousands of dollars of debt to their eyeballs and they are just so hell bent on getting that degree but it's because of soft money, they are being forced to, to continue working. And uh, as, you, as you had said, to really take the time to hone that craft or whatever, but that's still under soft money. And also like under soft money, yeah, people do feel the need to work, work and work and work and work. So I, I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. And it really all comes back down to subjective value. And subjective value is what actually gave us the value of Bitcoin. Of course, there are you know technicalities and just economics being economics, but it's Bitcoin could have not taken off. It could have failed, but because people subjectively chose it and its network effects, it you know it's it's, it's taking off. So there there's that aspect of it too. So I, I think it really does come back to subjective value. And the most important thing here is that under a fiat standard, subjective value or just the freedom of choice is not as prevalent as it is otherwise. So, you know, I think all of that kind of leads to, you know, Bitcoin being this black hole of everything fiat driven and, you know, bad, for lack of better words. It just seems that it comes down to security. I mean, like if you can't depend on having money in the future or having some type of savings, you're always thinking short term, whether that's how you're building something, your relationships with people, 
Uh, again, that obviously goes back to time preference, but if you're just always thinking short term, you know, you hear a lot with the marketing programs, like how to make a quick buck, how to make them, you know, like how to turn something around. That's been the surprising thing with, uh, with all these side crypto projects is like, they're trying to get even more money faster than what Bitcoin can offer, which is like the fastest, the highest producing asset in the history of like assets. It's like, are you not happy with 400% returns? Like calm down, you know? And it's just this quick buck mentality. Um, volatility. Yeah, volatility, which is like ridiculous. And you know, the, the idea that volatility is risk is, is laughable. Like they, those get conflated in the finance world all the time. Volatility is not risk. That's going back to Bill's point about the subjective value. People are just trying to assess the value of the coin um, or any particular asset, but that, that's not the same as risk. And people tend to conflate those all the time and, and come up with algorithms around that. And so um, anyway, that, you know, we're getting on another topic, but it just really just changes how you plan for the future. And if you can't plan, you can't think long-term, you can't build a better product, can't build better anything. So, you know, it's, it's uh, totally agree with safe, safe Adina Moose. On the and to add to that, our- that price discovery isn't actually price discovery or monetization because those projects aren't money. So, right. right just to. On the topic of art, I, I would say I'm not going to go so far to say if you you know if you like Jackson Pollock, you can't be a Bitcoiner. Um, but that that being said, I think my my aesthetic taste as far as that go probably do um, comport close to to Safedine's. I actually you can't see because it's on the the wall I'm facing, but I've got um, the artist Thomas Cole has a five painting series uh, called The Course of Empire, and it basically is the rise and fall of a civilization, which you can see why I might be interested in that sort of thing as a Bitcoiner. Uh, but that's done in a more, you know, much more classical style. Um, I, I think part of what he was getting at was that with all of this easy money laying around, you do have massive amounts of just easy spending cash going into art, which might not otherwise have sold. I mean, you've got, you've got things that look like, you know, everybody saw last year that the banana on a wall, remember that it was a banana duct tape to wall sold for like $250,000. I mean, I don't think you see that in a hard money system, but but there is that sort of um, there is that psychological component of it too, where you know I, I think it's it's a beautiful thing that I've seen so far in the Bitcoin community without almost without fail, where people have this interest in what is what is deep and enduring and long lasting, and I, I always bring up like the the Lambo thing is is a joke that we tell, but it's you know it really is kind of just a joke. Um, you know, it's not that if I have millions of dollars, I won't buy a nice car, but, you know, in previous things like this, whether it be stocks or real estate or whatever, you, you have people talking about, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a, you know, a Chrome Lambo and bottle service at the club and this and that. Whereas Bitcoiners sit around going, I'm going to um, have a tutor to homeschool my kids. And we're going to see the world and, and I'm going to build a, you know, a family ranch and I'm going to have some cattle on it. It's that, it's that deeper mentality. And I think that that does encourage, encourage art forms that are deeper. Now, if you, if you guys look at um, in the Roman empire and if you go to the, the Greeks and Romans, their, their sculpture is, is so beautiful and it's so incredibly sophisticated and detailed and it, it looks alive in some ways. And then as you get to the ending of the Roman empire, there's this famous statue. That's the Tetrarchy. You have these, these four, or these yeah, four emperors who kind of shared power, and it looks like it was done by a kid. Um, it's just not nearly as sophisticated. It's just, 
it's more like blocky and chunky. Um, and it, it's fascinating to see that. And then you look at medieval, like the Bayou Tapestry. The way they draw people, I could draw, I, I can draw stick figures. That's about as good as I can draw. And, and that's what you see in the Bayou Tapestry. Something happened from point A to point B to point C uh, uh, on the art. Like what happened where they could make this incredible sculpture and then it was this sort of amateurish thing. And then a few centuries later, it's stick figures. Like something goes on to a society when it falls like that. And I, I think he's onto something there. I don't think we fully understand what's happening there, but, but it is an interesting indicator. I, th I think he is too. Yeah, go ahead, Blake. Oh, well, um, I didn't want to interrupt, but I, I was wondering if we could, I know we're running close on time. I was wondering if we could dive into more stock to flow uh as an as a topic because that was one of the big takeaways that it's only the most important idea in the book so we probably should <laughs> talk about it all right all right all right hold that one sec because i just have to read okay. this passage but just to, to put a, a cherry on the top of this art discussion but i think you know on on the 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 whole fiat food fiat culture fiat art i mean i think that terminology re, uh, very much stemmed from this book you know people started seeing many different elements of culture in terms of how it has been influenced by fiat money, by unsound money. And I think once you, again, once you have that lens, you see it in, in almost all things. And I think it's very interesting for me and fun for me to both think and, and talk with other people about how they see culture. Let's say in a hundred years, let, let's say on a Bitcoin standard, what do you think culture look like, looks like? And now you refer to it a bit as, as kind of already what we're seeing amongst Bitcoiners about how they kind of uh, want the more kind of real and grounded sort of high quality, low quantity yeah. sort of things in their life, which I tend to agree with. And I only see being amplified as we move forward with more and more people operating uh, on a Bitcoin standard. The last thing before stock to flow is this, uh, is this quote from Safe uh, from the book on art, because I, I wanted to share some of Safe's fire here. In the era of unsound money, no artist has the low time preference to work as hard or as long as Michelangelo to learn their craft properly or to spend, spend any significant amount of time perfecting it. A stroll through a modern art gallery shows artistic work whose production shows no more effort or talent than can be mustered by a bored six-year-old. Modern artists have replaced craft and long hours of practice with pretentiousness, shock value, indignation, and existential angst in order to cow audience, audiences into appreciating their art only long pretentious diatribes shaming others for not understanding the work give it value. <laughs> so I'll just, uh, I'll, leave it, I'll leave that one there. Just so everyone knows, um, Safe is the exact same person in real life as he is in his books. It's, it's <laughs> yes. fun to be around. <laughs> All right, Blake, hit me with your uh, stock to flow juice. Yeah, stock to flow juice coming out right up. So I think like I've been thinking <laughs> stock to flow is a measure of scarcity. So that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's the production of something versus its stock. So in gold, there's about 2% um, being produced each year. So that comes up to a number of stock to flow. I think it's around 50. But really, like for me, the stock to flow is like measuring the cash flow of a business. So that's the way that I like to think about it, right? Where in finance and in business, you are trying to evaluate a company, you're going to understand its cash flows and you're going to understand its discounted uh, rate of return. And you bring that into the present moment and then you get uh, the value of a company. And that's one way to value a company or a business or a piece of real estate. With money, it comes down to measuring its scarcity and the stock to flow 
is a way to measure a monetary assets scarcity. And with uh, money being a winner take all asset class, it's not like real estate where you can measure several different businesses. It's a winner take, winner take all. So one asset usually that has the highest stock to flow ratio, in other words, it's the most scarce, will um, will commandeer the um, the uh, the monetary premium um, or become money. And gold was that for you know ten thousand years, and it beat out every other asset. Uh, and now it's Bitcoin's turn. So Bitcoin can potentially beat it out. Um, and so that's the way I think about, you know, stock to flow or the measure of the scarcity. And then uh, Seyfedean brought that topic up. So he, he, he talked about stock to flow. So your ability to measure the scarcity of monetary asset. Um, and then, you know, I guess on the, you know, just to throw this in here too, I think one of the things that's not really talked about enough um, which is surprising because we have so many smart people in Bitcoin, but how big this stock to flow market or monetary asset market um, store value market is. And if you start to measure inflation, which I would articulate this is closer to 10% um, rate of inflation right now, anything that's not getting a 10% return could potentially be a store of value for Bitcoin. So you're talking about $250 trillion of the bond market. You're talking about definitely $100 trillion of the fiat currency market. You're talking about a good portion of the real estate market and the stock market, right? Because none of those are getting the 10% return. In other words, that it's not so much that the value of the dollar, uh, or sorry, the value of an asset is becoming more valuable. It's the fact that the value of the dollar is losing 10% of its value each year. And so when you're like, okay, that's just to stay above water, you just want to get an asset that stores your value and doesn't lose 10% of its value each year, um, you get something like Bitcoin. And so it's interesting to think that Bitcoin is the potentially the largest addressable market in the entire world in the history of, of you know, kind of investing or whatever you want to call it with combined with what we were talking about earlier, which is potentially the risk-free rate or the risk-free asset. It's safer than money in the bank. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to harp on that, just combining the risk-free with uh, kind of the economics of, of the stock to flow. So um, yeah, that, that's my understanding of the kind of stock to flow model. Um, and, and it's a way to measure the scarcity of monetary asset. It, it really gets into the DNA of the idea of why does something like gold have value? Right. At the very, at a very granular level. So it really is this idea of there is so much of this in the world and this is how much more you can, you can add to it every year in its simplest form. Um, and there's, you know, there's nothing you can do really with Bitcoin to change that with gold, you can mine harder, but it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. You tend to be within a really small percentage. Um, the reason it doesn't work that way for other metals um, there are industrial metals, say like copper, is they can become, because of their chemical nature, they become consumed in industrial processes. Um, they're abundant enough that extra resources devoted to mining make it easier to get more out. So that's why those aren't good bases for, for a hard asset, where Bitcoin has those properties better than, any, I think, what by the next having, it becomes, it becomes harder um, as far as S2F than, than gold, it's roughly equal to it now, if, if I have that right. Um, the little details on that don't matter, but the, the principle is, is what's important. Um, that you have this thing that cannot be faked. Um, for those of you who don't understand, if you're new to Bitcoin, just uh, 
you know, we can, we can talk about it or I can direct you to videos, but you cannot fake the scarcity of Bitcoin. There's no way to make more Bitcoin except to go through the process. Nothing you can do to change that um, for technological reasons. But that is, that is the heart of stock to flow. And the adjustment of that stock to flow through the having is the secret weapon of Bitcoin. Um, it's what makes Bitcoin more and more and more valuable in relation to other assets, specifically fiat currencies. You know, the most important one, obviously, that we look at is its, its relationship to the U.S. dollar, but also its relationship to other assets. That is the secret weapon. That is why Bitcoin is going to win this war. Let me ask you guys this. We touched on this at the very beginning. What were your thoughts? You know, because the stock to flow, as you've just articulated, relationship of the existing stock to the annual new supply uh and bitcoin because it has a terminal supply it, there's a, there's a hard cap of 21 million effectively means that at some point its stock to flow ratio will be infinite right you won't be able to produce any more to uh, in relation to the existing supply mm. and so when you realize this and in the in the book uh safe uses the term absolute scarcity what were your what was going on in your head when you, when you first came face to face with this concept of absolute scarcity? For me, it was not, I didn't believe them. I'm like absolute scarcity. You think everything, you know, that there's things that are scarce all over the world. Um, but he did a great way. He, he articulated very well that like, no, it's scarcity is, is usually just a function of human time and effort. You know, you can always build more real estate is a great example that everyone thinks is scarce. You know, they, they say they're not building any more of it, but they're always building more of it. They're always building skylines and sky rises and things of that nature. So you start to realize that like, you know, that was kind of a, a way to value real estate. There only, there's almost so much beachfront property in California left, that type of model. Um, but then you realize like, no, they can always build up. Um, and, and there's a lot of things they can do and they can build around the, the globe. So like you start to realize that Bitcoin is the most scarce asset. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's a huge takeaway just, just that alone. So that, that was my takeaway or my thought. Al, Phil, you got any thoughts about absolute scarcity? Absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Go ahead and kill yourselves now. No, the whole scarcity thing was really the last things for me to understand, but I like to just come up with little stories to make it easier, more digestible, but it's basically like everyone bidding for a piece of the moon. If the moon was made out of gold or cheese or whatever, but I like, yes, there's like many more moons in the universe or whatever, but you know, it's infinitely there and no more is going to be made like there will only be 21 million bitcoin that is it and this was just the most mind-blowing thing to me was what it meant to be a deflationary asset and the fact that as we talked about sound money just how that wrecks people's lives in the world that doesn't happen in bitcoin it's the exact opposite of the dollar standard your the the value of your purchasing power increases i mean does it not just blow your mind if there was a a satoshi in dollar parity i mean think of all the, the millionaires that you just made bitcoiners so it's just really 
once once I understand the deflationary technology via digital scarcity and it being digital is another giant innovation and phenomena all of its own. Once I understood that, it was like, you know, yeah, as Matt O'Dell says, Bitcoin's going to pump forever. Like, why shouldn't it? If it's being treated globally as a stock, for lack of a better word, and people learn that aspect of it, then how does it just not moon? I mean, how? It's a function of people's knowledge. I mean, people just don't get it. Exactly. I, it's laughable that, I, you know, it's, it's laughable. I mean, that you have professional money managers out there that don't get money. Like, they're not even close. Yeah. And they can't even art form a sentence when it comes to it. It's like, what is money? They're like, oh, it's sheer delusion. Don't worry about it. And again, you've got Warren Buffett that is just like, doesn't even understand gold. And it's just like, what are you, like, what planet are you living on? Yeah. Um, and it's just like, the fact that we did this in our spare time, well, these people have a full-time job devoted to this and they have full-time teams. It's, that, that's the function. You know, that's the function is, is knowledge and mindshare. And when it pumps again, guess what? It's going to be back in people's minds and they're going to be answering that question. And it's just going to be a, a really great feedback loop where number go up. I don't know uh, who said it, but they said um, Bitcoin's price is a lagging indicator of people's understanding of money. Somebody said that recently. Jeff Booth. Oh, was it Jeff? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to jump outside maybe just strictly economics with what you're talking about when you get the concept of absolute scarcity. Maybe it's a little more philosophical, but it is, to me, it's like, it is the closest thing we have to a truth that no one can screw with. Hmm. Um, we've taken it so for granted that we live in a world where by manipulating words and manipulating people's emotions, that's how you decide what's real or who has power or any of those things. And Bitcoin's absolute scarcity is the ultimate in no bullshit. It is what it is. The truth is the truth. And it doesn't matter who you're friends with. It doesn't matter how good you are at spinning a story. You know, you can have all the PR people in the world. You can have all the media in the world on your side. You can buy and sell politicians. It just is what it is. It is the truth. Uh, and there, there's nothing that you can do about it. And I think having that there as a symbol is it's going to be a little bit of a wake up call for us um, on a civilizational level. And there, there's going to be respect for this idea of, of a truth that's not there to be manipulated. Um, no matter what you do, what connections you have. And I think we went way too far down that road where, you know, we sort of roll our eyes at people who want to believe in there is some level of, you know, of purity and truth and a reality. And it's all just who my buddies are and we can overpower you. Um, and, and we're going to have something that beats all of that on a, even if people don't understand that on an intellectual level, it, they'll start to get that on a, on a subconscious level, I think. And who knows what the consequences of that are going to be. I think it's going to have in, incredible benefits, you know, over the next few hundred years from that aspect of it. Forget the economics. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm very much inclined to agree with that. And I think, the more we spend time thinking about this, the more the impacts of this tool emerge in the physical world and, and manifest in, in influencing the ways in which we interact with one another, the more it will become clear what this thing 
really is and what it really means. I think it's, we're still very much monkeys dancing around, you know, a, a, a fire, not really getting it, not, not knowing it's going to be the combustion engine, not knowing it's going to, you know, take us to Mars. We're just, it's this thing that we know has value and uh, we use it for the purposes that we, that, that, you know, we can right now. And I, I'm very much interested in seeing how our um, approach and how our perspective on this thing changes as, as, we, as we go through time. But needless to say, very excited. Uh, gents, we've been going for uh, over an hour and a half now. I think we should shut it down. What, uh, what if any, final comments do any of you guys have? I can start us off. I'm, like, I, I just, going back to Phil's point, like, I, you know, it's, I don't know why people don't get this, and I don't know why the finance world doesn't get this. I mean, partially we understand, and if we can give them the book, they would probably understand it um, and, you know, give us some time with them. But this, to me, is the risk-free asset where it's safer than money in the bank. It can't be inflated away. You can give it to your grandchildren. It is the risk-free asset, in my opinion, where there's obviously volatility there, but combined with the biggest total addressable market on the planet of $415 trillion, you're talking about the lowest risk and the highest upside asset in, on the history of, of you know, potential investments. Uh, combined with sound economic principles that have been tested throughout 10,000 years, which is what Seyfedin's book really did for me. You know, it was like, okay, these are economic laws that have been shown throughout history and you can bank on those. And that to me is, is really what, what his book did is showing again, that it's kind of because of that, it's, it is that risk-free asset. You can bank on that. And then the technology being sound where he didn't get into that, but it's been around for 11 years now, maybe 12 now or 11. I should know this, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that's kind of where my mindset goes. And then it's just a function of incompetence, I suppose, you know, going back to these money managers that literally don't even know what money is and they don't know why Bitcoin can be the future money and they haven't spent the time to do it yet. Just even, you know, it's one thing to understand the economics, but it's also, it's interesting to understand that like why so many people are behind on this curve and they don't understand it because they haven't read Seyfedean's book. And so I, to measure how early we are, I do I have a really simple equation where I take Seyfedean's Twitter followers and I subtract it from the population of the planet and then I get, an under, I get a number of how early we are. And that's the number that I use to say like, all right, that's how fucking early we are. Because it's like, he's got 80,000. And I'm like, he should be, you know, he's going to have millions at some point. You're going to get and, an economics Nobel for that someday. Yeah. It's just very simple math. And I'm like, all right, that's, that's how early I am. Yeah. I'm sure people have a couple hundred bucks, but when they realize that the math and the equation that I just used, and then they read Safedine's book and they, you know, they follow him on Twitter, then it's like, all right, that person gets it mark him down or her down. Um, and so, you know, that's what say Fadine's book did for me is, is gave it that economic law where it did became the risk-free asset. And you just had to start to compare it to money in the bank or fiat currencies or Venezuelan Boulevard or real estate and all the risks associated with all those other assets that you can put your money in. Um, and yeah, so that, that's what his book did for me. Um, so I'm a huge fanboy of his and I follow him on Twitter. So I get it. Al? Uh, my final thoughts on it are buy this book. If you haven't, give it to your friends who are interested in learning about Bitcoin. Um, I go with the shill lightly theory. I don't try to uh, push the idea of Bitcoin on anyone who doesn't want to hear it anymore. But if they're interested, have them read this book. 
It is something that the layperson can understand. It's not super technical. It's not that hard to get. Uh, if you understand the ideas in this book, you're going to understand what the future is going to be like um, way before a lot of other people do. Uh, we've crossed, you know, there's this concept in black holes of the event horizon where you cross that line and at first it seems like nothing has changed, but what you don't know is you can never go back once you've crossed it. And I think we, I think that's already happened. We just don't realize it yet with the economy and, and with the course of Bitcoin. I think we've crossed the event horizon and this is a guide to explain to you what's happening and why. Nice. Phil. Yeah. Just to top off what those guys said, it's, Bitcoin's freedom money. That's it. And whether or not people learn now, they're shill lightly. Eventually, <laughs> they won't have a choice to, for for lack of better words. But it, it's it's just the way that that things are going. And the sooner that you can learn about it, really the the better. Of course, if you have any questions, you can hop in any of our DMs and. We will shill our lightest, but also our very hardest. <laughs> but yeah, Bitcoin enables freedom. And yeah, th that's where we're going. 100%. Well, uh, I want to thank uh, Safe for writing the book. Blake, echo your, your comments, uh, his contribution. Really invaluable at this point. And unfortunately, um, Safe was actually going to join us today, but he... Uh, <laughs> as a result of what's going on in Beirut and he's got some family there. He, he had uh, more pressing uh, and, and important things to, to deal with. So definitely wish him and his family all the best in, in whatever's going on in their lives right now. But um, yeah, I, and I think final thought is if you haven't listened to uh, last, the last book review on the sovereign individual, and more importantly, if you haven't read the sovereign individual, I really feel like these two books go super well together because they give you such a good framework and so much clarity for understanding what's going on, having it in the proper historical perspective and determining what to do about it and, how, and, and, and plotting a path forward. So I, you know, if you haven't read The Sovereign Individual and or this book, don't waste, it, don't waste any more fucking time and, and read them. <laughs> and uh, gents, I just wanna thank you guys for hanging out with me, discussing this great book. And uh, I'm sure I'll be speaking with you all again soon. Thanks for having sure. us. It was great. See you guys. Yep. Thanks, Thanks for the time. Thanks.